If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to the book of Second John. Second John. A year ago, a year and a week ago, we finished our study of the epistle of First John. And then a bunch of things happened since then. Now we return, we look at Second John and the Lord willing next Sunday, Third John. Second and Third John are the shortest books in the New Testament. They're shorter even than Philemon and Jude, which we just studied. There are four books in the New Testament that are, consist of what we would call one chapter. The themes that John writes about in First John are, uh, they recur, they uh, occur again in these two epistles. And it's wise that we studied First John first because it gives us the background, the foundation to look at these two letters. First um, John is more of a treatise, sort of a doctrinal treatise. These are letters, very personal letters, and they are the practical application of what John said in First John. There is practical application in First John, but here it's on the ground, if you wish, where the rubber meets the road. Here are specific situations where they are to put into practice the things that John has talked about. Specifically, the notion or the idea of showing hospitality to those who are traveling, to those who are teachers who are spreading the gospel. Very, very briefly, I want to review what we saw in 1 John and point to the connection it has in 2 and 3 John. The epistle focuses on three tests. How do you know if someone's really a Christian? If somebody comes into your congregation and claims to be a Christian and claims to be a Christian teacher, how do you know whether or not they're genuine? Remember, they did not have the New Testament yet at that point. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the Internet. So if somebody came in and claimed to be a Christian teacher, how would you know whether or not he was telling the truth? Well, the foundation of 1 John is the incarnation, that Jesus came in the flesh and that God is light. John gives three tests. If somebody comes in and claims to be a believer, there are three tests. First of all, are they obedient to God's commands? Secondly, do they love God and fellow believers? And thirdly, do they believe that Jesus is the Son of God? In chapter 2 of 1 John, he describes all three tests in order. There's obedience, there's love, there's belief. In chapter 3, he deals with obedience and love. In chapter 4, belief and love. But then we come to chapter 5 of 1 John, and he puts them all together. And let me just read the first three verses. Um, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. So that is the theological background of Second and Third John. That is the book of First John. But let's look at the historical background. The first century was a fascinating time in human history. The Roman Empire had been established, and because of it, you know, with the legions, they built roads throughout the Mediterranean basin, and it was easier than it had ever been to travel from point A to point B. It was also safer to travel than it had ever been before. Um, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that the legions maintain, 
chances are you could get from point A to point B without being robbed, without being harassed, and you could get there rather quickly. And everyone spoke the same language, that is Greek, Koine Greek. So you have a common tongue, and so getting around the Mediterranean basin at that point was wonderfully easy. There was one problem. Where would you spend the night? And particularly if you were a Christian or a Christian teacher, where would you spend the night? Um, arriving at some city uh, on their journey was quite different than we might imagine. There were no hotels. I think we could, that makes sense to us. And there weren't comfortable village inns that we sort of imagined during the medieval period. Um, ancient inns, that is during the first century, were more or less brothels, houses of ill repute. Um, and the innkeeper was generally an unsavory character. Uh, in Roman law, this is mentioned over and over again. You know, this guy's an innkeeper, it's, you know, not a good reputation. In such inns were notoriously dirty and flea-infested. So it was natural that Christians on their travels would not want to stay at such places, but would hope to find a place to spend the night with fellow believers. That Christians were to open their homes, they were to show hospitality to those who were traveling. And we see this with the Apostle Paul. When he was in Philippi, he stayed with Lydia. Uh, in Thessalonica, he stayed with Jason. In uh, Corinth, he stayed with, stayed with Gaius. In Caesarea, when he's coming back and then he ultimately will be arrested, he stays with Philip the Evangelist in Caesarea. And then when he gets to Jerusalem, he stays, stays with uh, a man from Cyprus named uh, Manasson. So this was common among the people of God, the followers of Jesus, um, but it was also open to abuse. You know, Think about if you're a pagan, but you don't want to stay in an inn, you could claim to be a Christian, and then the Christians would open their home to you, and you'd have a pretty nice place to spend the night. Um, what should you do? I mean, do you have them fill out a form to see whether or not they're genuine? I mean, how do you, what are you supposed to do? Well, these two short books deal with that if somebody has false credentials, are you supposed to give them free room and board? What are you supposed to do? With that background, the theological and the historical background, we will look, as I said today, at 2 John, Lord willing, next week, 3 John, and they are two sides of the same coin. Um, we will see this as we go along. Here in 2 John, there are three parts. There's the introduction, verses 1, 2, and 3. Uh, the message, the main message of this letter, verses 4 through 11, and finally the conclusion, verses 12 and 13. So look, if you would, at the first three verses here of Second John. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth. Sorry. Not I only, but also all who know the truth. Yeah. Because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. This letter follows the pattern of that time. 
That is, the person who writes the letter's name is mentioned first. For us today, it's at the end. Okay? Then the person or persons being addressed is mentioned second. Then uh, you have a greeting, some type of greeting. Um, this follows that pattern. But you will notice something in this letter. No names are mentioned. Who writes this letter? He's the elder. And who is he writing to? The chosen lady and her children. And the elder refers not simply to the person's age, but his position or his office in the church. The presbyteros is the elder. You have the overseer, episkopos. Um, he refers to himself as the elder. I think the people he's writing to know exactly who this is. We don't, but they did. So rather than using his name, he simply says, the elder, I'm writing to you. And he's writing to the chosen lady, or as some translations have it, the elect lady and her children. We take the author, the elder, to be John. This is what the church has taught by tradition. The woman, the elect lady, the chosen lady, we're not clear about. There are many theories that I won't go through. But there are two main schools of thought. One is that this refers to a person. This is a specific person um, that he's writing to. And I really don't think this, and the arguments here are improbable. I mean, some people have even suggested that her name is Electa Kyria, chosen lady, or just Kyria. Um, but if you look at the end of the letter, the children of your chosen servant, or sister, so you have Electa again, it seems unlikely. The other point, school of thought, which I hold to, is that he's writing to a church. And rather than saying a church, he personifies it as a lady. And we are told that the church is the bride of Christ. This seems completely appropriate. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am speaking about Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. So when John refers to the church that he's writing to as the chosen lady, this works, this makes sense. Um, he's writing to a specific congregation, by the way. He's not writing to the church at large. He's writing to a very specific congregation. Some people have said, well, why, why all the cloak and dagger? Why all the metaphorical language? Why not just write John to the church at whatever the place was and to all the members there? Because that's in essence what he is saying. Why doesn't he just say that? We can only speculate which is always dangerous. Perhaps there was the possibility that the letter might fall into the wrong hands. Um, this is the time when persecution is on the rise, and perhaps this is some type of code that the believers understood. It's John, he's the elder, he's writing to us. Maybe that's why he did it. Um, but could it also be that the symbolic language, the metaphor, is more powerful than just a straightforward declaration? Imagine if I were to write a letter to this congregation, and instead of writing Damon 
to the, to the church on Melrose, I would write the teaching elder or pastor to the chosen lady. And perhaps it would give you pause to think, um, well, yeah, Damon is the teaching elder. He is the pastor. And we are called and chosen by God as a part of the bride of Christ. And some people are bothered. Why is she refers, referred to as the chosen lady or the elect lady? What does this mean? What does this indicate? We have seen in our studies that God has a purpose in human history. It is all headed to a particular point, the telos, the end of all things. And God will accomplish this. To do this, God must take the initiative. He must, in fact, be the one to get the process going and not just get it going, but to keep it going until Jesus returns. It's a good thing, because if he didn't, nothing would happen. Nothing would happen. We see that at the beginning, he called Abraham. He chose Abraham. He called Abraham. He chose Israel to be his people. We hear in Romans, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. It is God who comes after us. It is he who calls us, who chooses us to be conformed to the image of his son. And if he didn't, again, nothing would happen. John says of the congregation of its members, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth. This is still, well, this is still the address, but it drifts into the greeting that we find in verse number three. It is the truth of the gospel, the good news that John spells out at the beginning of 1 John, which bound him in love to these people. That's why he writes to these people. He holds to them in the truth. It isn't only John, by the way. It's also all who are bound by the truth, those who know the truth. And why is this the case? Verse number two, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Truth is not an abstraction, okay? It's not some theory. It is something which is alive in the people of God. I think we lose sight of that. Um, and particularly in today's world where people say, well, that's your truth. That's what you think. That's your truth. But the truth, in fact, is alive. You may recall the words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth that lives in us by the Spirit. And thus we are bound to one another. The greeting is found in verse number three. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, who will be with us, I'm sorry, will be with us in truth and love. We've seen in our studies of other epistles that the opening of the letters follow this pattern. The writer's name, identity of the recipient, the greeting. And the greeting in the letters of the period is usually karein in Greek, which means literally greetings. And some of them, well, some of the letters, the letter from the first council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, it starts out that way, greetings, karein. And James, the book of James, also starts out that way. The other letters, though, change karein to charis, which is grace, and that's what we find here. Grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is usually what we hear from Paul. John does something different in at least four different ways. First of all, it is not a wish or a prayer, this salutation, this greeting. It is a confident affirmation. You will have noticed that every time I've read verse number three, I have stumbled because unlike Paul's greetings, this one has a verb, okay? So he says that the grace, mercy, and peace will be with us, okay? It's a declaration. Whereas for Paul, it's more of a, this is my prayer, my greeting, I hope, I wish that this is true for you. Secondly, John adds mercy. Usually it's grace and peace, which would be charis in Greek, shalom in Hebrew. So the two forms of greed. But somehow, for some reason, John inserts mercy in between there. Both grace and mercy are expression of God's love. Grace is to the guilty and the undeserving. It's been defined as undeserved favor. Mercy is to the needy and the helpless. And peace is the restoration of harmony with God, with others, and with ourselves. We call this salvation, God's peace. When you put the three together, we have peace which characterizes salvation, which he speaks of mercy which we have need of, and grace which we do not deserve at all. Thirdly, like Paul's greetings, we hear from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. But here John adds the Father's Son. This reflects John's theological emphasis, which we'll get to when we get to the main message, that Jesus is not only the Messiah, the Christ, he is the Father's Son. He is the Son of the Father. And you will notice that John repeats, from God the Father, from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. Then lastly, John adds in truth and love, indicating, in my opinion, that grace, mercy, and peace will express themselves, they will, be, they will work themselves out in truth and love. These aren't just words floating around. They will be practical realities in our lives. Simply put, truth and love are the essential marks of the Christian life. And it's critical for what he's about to write to this church, the chosen lady. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 4 through 11. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in his teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Now the practical purpose of this letter emerges. It concerns both the inner life of the fellowship, verses 4, 5, and 6, 
and then the external danger, these false teachers coming into the congregation. The two, in fact, are related. First of all, he gives thanks in verse number four. Um, and again, Paul begins his letters oftentimes with a, a word of thanksgiving. Um, there is much in the church that he's writing to that gives him cause for rejoicing. You'll notice the verb there, find. It gives me great, has given me great joy to find some of your children, which seems to indicate that John had recently visited them. There's actually one school of thought that thinks that John is writing to a congregation in the same city that he's in, in Ephesus, that there were many house churches, and apparently there's one house church over there that's having a difficulty, and John writes to them. He has visited them recently, and when he did, he was filled with rejoicing. However, not all of them are walking consistently. I find some of your children walking in the truth. Not all of them are. In going through 1 John, and here in this particular verse, the verb that really interests me is walking. Walking in the truth. It points to a consistent putting one foot after the other. It's not hopping, it's not skipping, it's not jumping, it's walking. It's like breathing. Breathe in, breathe out, one step after another. I saw a sign once that said, hiking is just dramatic walking. Um, Paul's, or John is calling for walking, step after step after step. It may seem tedious, it may seem boring, but it is the mark of consistent living, just as breathing is. Verses 5 and 6. Now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is what he wrote in 1 John. But one that we've had from the beginning, I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Three things stand out in these verses. First of all, he keeps repeating the word command or commands. Okay? It's found at least three times in these two verses. It's also found in verse 4. Secondly, the place of love. And thirdly, John defines love, which I think is critical to this text as it was to 1 John. But before we get to that, some may object that to say that believing or faith, walking in the truth and love, these should not be areas of discipline. These are not amenable to discipline. These are not things that should be commanded. Um, how can you tell me to believe what I don't believe? And how can you force me or tell me to love someone that I do not love? In our society, faith is seen as an intuition and love as an emotion. As such, they are beyond duty. You can't command, that. you can't say this is your duty to have faith and to love. No, faith is seen as an intuition, love as an emotion and you know, as Woody Allen put it, the heart wants what the heart wants. There's no logic to these things. You meet someone and you fall in love and that's that. And yet John is making it a command. So there is a part of us, whether we accept what the culture says or not, it's there in our brain somewhere. There's a little bit of resistance to this idea that we are commanded to love. By the way, 
you know, people say the heart wants what the heart wants. What if the heart wants to murder? I mean, what if the heart wants revenge? Well, we certainly wouldn't find that acceptable. And yet somehow in love, that is seen as the way it is. And for John, it is something that is commanded. Belief and love for Christians is an obedient response to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And God's revelation has moral content. If you choose not to believe, and if you choose not to love, then that is an act of disobedience. You are choosing to disobey. Our love as Christians belongs to the area, the arena, if you wish, of action rather than that of emotion. It's not an involuntary, uncontrollable passion. I can't help it, I have to love you. I love you as a a brother or sister. Yeah, it is something that is in fact commanded. Deliberately, by choice, we choose to love one another. And we do that with unselfish service. Faith and love are commanded, and we should not be surprised that it is repeated. Okay? And yet, I would tell you, I don't know if you caught it, I find it somewhat surprising. John writes, I ask that we love one another. Well, the command is not John's command, it's God's command. Okay? It is God who has commanded us to love one another. John is also bound by that commandment. Just because he's an apostle doesn't mean he doesn't have to do what God says. He is bound by it, and he asks, as I am commanded to love and you are commanded to love, I ask that, in fact, we love one another. Let's be clear. Love is not something we get to define by ourselves. And the definition of love is found in verse number six. This is love. Okay, here it is. This is love. Here's the definition. That we walk in obedience to his commands, and his command is that you walk in love. It's going, it's circular, isn't it? The command is that we love. The command is that we love, and this is love, that you obey that commandment. This all prepares us for what comes now in verses 7 through 11. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. This is interesting. Jesus himself warned his disciples that there would be false Christ who would come, who would say, in fact, that they were from God. And it would be, if it were possible, they would even deceive, do you remember what Jesus said? They would deceive the elect. And this is the elect lady, the chosen lady. So this is something that they really need to be on their guard against. In 1 John 4, we read, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. What is it that they refuse to acknowledge? That Jesus has come in the flesh. Now, there are two possibilities here. One is that they deny that Jesus was God in the flesh, that God came in the person of Jesus in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary. Okay? The second is that they deny that Jesus was the Christ. They deny that he's God. They deny that he is the Christ. 
And I'm not obviously on the side of the heretics, but I, I think I can sort of see their reasoning. Because if you say that God became a man, like me, became a human being, that really seems to bring God down. So they would say rather, no, okay, Jesus was a man, but when he was baptized, the Christ spirit came on him. So he was Christ. And then when he was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Christ spirit left him. So he was just a man again. But to say that God came in the flesh through the Virgin Mary, was born into this world the way that we are, uh, had to learn things as we do. Yeah, that was just hard for some people. And, And Paul says it's a great mystery. The incarnation is. But they, in fact, denied that he was God and that he was the Christ. And such people who hold such views are wrong. They are deceivers. They are antichrist. In 1 John 2.22, John writes, Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. And then 1 John 4. I read verse 1 a moment ago. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. If you were with us when we went through 1 John, I don't know if you remember this. Did you know that the word Antichrist and Antichrist in the plural only appear in 1 John and 2 John? In the whole New Testament. It's not found in the book of Revelation. And John wrote the book of Revelation. Antichrist is a a word that we only find in these two letters. And the Antichrist are those who deny that Jesus is the eternal son of God. They deny that he came in the flesh. With that in mind, John now gives two warnings. The first warning is, watch to yourselves. Don't be deceived. Look at verses 8 and 9. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. The believers, the children of the chosen lady, could not afford to relax their vigilance. The importance of such vigilance is mentioned, first of all, negatively and then positively. The negative is that you do not lose what you have worked for. And the positive is that you may be rewarded fully. For some people, this may sound suspiciously like earning your salvation or losing your salvation. No, salvation is a free gift. It is the gift of God. Rather, John has in mind the reward of service. That when we stand before God at the final judgment... We will be rewarded for what we have done. And if, in fact, you help these false teachers, you will lose whatever reward you might have gained. But if, in fact, you are careful and you're vigilant, then you will keep the reward that you have earned. Who are these false teachers? 
What do they do? Verse number nine, it starts out really interestingly. Anyone who runs ahead. See, the false teachers claim to have advanced knowledge. They claim to have more knowledge than the apostles. They claim to have more knowledge than the regular believer, the regular Christian. They have gone ahead of everyone else. They have run ahead. But if you claim to have run ahead, that you have deeper knowledge, more advanced knowledge, graduate school knowledge, if you wish, but you do not continue in the teaching of Christ, then you're a false teacher. You do not have God. On the other hand, if you continue in the teachings of Christ, you have both the Father and the Son. And here I think we come to a really important matter. There are many who claim to believe in God, but they really are uncomfortable with believing in Jesus. They just don't see the need for that. They would claim to be theists. I believe in God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? They're like, no, I'm, I wouldn't, I'm not going to go that far. John says, no, you, that's not the way it is. If you claim to believe in God, but you do not believe in Jesus, you do not follow the teaching of Christ, then in fact you don't have God. What you're doing is merely paying lip service. The second warning is found in verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. So John says you not only need to be vigilant yourselves about yourselves, but you need to take care about people who come in. You open the house up. You, you, know, you want to show hospitality. Um, if somebody comes to you and says that Jesus is not the Christ or he's not the Son of God, um, don't take him into your house and do not welcome him. For some commentators, they feel like John's just crossed the line, that he is no longer Christian here. He's, he's being very unchristian in what he writes. It sounds harsh because we're told elsewhere in the New Testament that we are to show hospitality. Romans 12, 13, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. There it is. Hebrews 13, 2, do not forget to entertain strangers. Okay, people you don't know, strangers. For by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. This seems to indicate the story of Abraham back in Genesis 18, when the three men uh, came and he, he showed them hospitality. So it sounds rather harsh for John to say, yeah, don't let them in the door and don't, you know, don't feed them, don't anything, don't let them in the door. Given the situation in the ancient world with inns and stuff, um, this sounds like John is being very unchristian. I think people who think that have missed the point. I would suggest to you that John is clearly writing about false teachers, those who bring this teaching. Okay? He's not speaking of people who may have different views, who may in fact hold false views even. John has in mind those who are engaged in the systematic dissemination of lies. They are missionaries of error, of heresy. They speak against the incarnation. And it may be here that John is thinking not only of you know, someone coming to your house, but of actually coming to the congregation because there were no church buildings. 
So don't let them in the house where you meet as a congregation. Don't let this person speak because otherwise you are helping him propagate his heresy. You will remember that this letter is written not simply to uh, an individual, but to a church. And when he writes of taking him into your house, I think, in fact, he means the house where the church meets. So this prohibition, I think, is more of an official one. The church, the congregation needs to be careful that they do not allow heretics to come and preach. And I'm going on thin ice here, bear with me. I would say it isn't even a prohibition against heresy in general, but specifically against those who say Jesus is not the Christ, he's not the Son of God. Those who reject the incarnation, these are the people that John is writing about. We may, in fact, show hospitality to those who have different views on specific doctrines. We can still show them hospitality without going contrary to John's instructions. I think that's really important. If, in fact, you only show hospitality to people you agree with, you really, really narrow who it is you're going to deal with. And we're told in Hebrews 12 to show hospitality to strangers. I would argue that as Christians, we are to show hospitality to believers and unbelievers alike. Well, Damon, then what about 2 John? He's talking about false teachers, those who deny the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. And these you are not to welcome, because if you do, you share in their wicked work. And this we should not want to do. The conclusion is found in verses 12 and 13. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sisters send their greetings. This brief letter comes to a close. John has a lot more to say, but he doesn't want to write it down on paper. Talking is a much more satisfying form of communication. Um, I think spoken words are less likely to be misunderstood than written words. You have tone of voice, you have hand gestures, facial expressions as you speak. Um, You communicate more than if you merely write words down on paper. So John hopes to come and visit them. He wants to, apparently he has visited them recently. He wants to come back and visit them again so that they can speak face to face. And he writes, so that our joy may be complete. How is it that John imagines that their joy would be complete? Through face-to-face fellowship. Fellowship refers to the common participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ, and the indwelling of the Spirit. It's a Trinitarian fellowship. But John continues, as, it's, as he must, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We hear similar language, by the way, in the prayer of Jesus. um, That all of them may be one, Father, may they also be in us. In the prologue of 1 John, we hear, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
We write this to make our joy complete. It is in fellowship that we have the true Christian joy that God gives us through the Spirit as we are united with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and with one another. And then the letter closes with the words that children of your chosen sister send their greetings. That is to say, uh, the people that are with him, he in fact, they are sending their greetings along uh, with John's letter. I think that John has really been misunderstood in this letter. It seems that he is saying, at least to some, um, that we can only show hospitality to those who have the same beliefs or doctrines as we do. And I'm convinced this is not what he's saying. You can look it up on YouTube, but there is a little bit by the comedian Emo Phillips. I don't know if you know, he has a Prince Valiant type haircut, rather odd character. And the Golden Gate, if you're looking it up, uh, scene, where he comes on a guy who is ready to jump. And he's like, why are you jumping? He's like, well, I've been rejected because of my beliefs. And he's like, well, are you a Christian? He goes, yes, I am. Goes, I am too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? I'm Protestant. I am too. And he goes through this whole litany of things that they have in common. And then finally at the end, he says, do you have this? And he goes, no, this. And he goes, die, heretic. He pushes him off the bridge. Um, as though we can only have fellowship, we can only show hospitality to those who are exactly like us. And that's not what John is saying. Okay? He's very, very specific that those who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, that he is the Son of God, these are people as teachers that we should not allow into the congregation. It may be that there are those who are confused or those who have been led astray. And are we, are we going to leave them in the darkness? Are we going to leave them in the dark? Can we not, in fact, show them hospitality and teach them and correct their thinking? I don't think John is as harsh as people make him out to be. Uh, I think this is a wonderful lesson, the application of what it means to be a Christian, that we are to love one another, we are to walk in the truth. The Lord willing, next week we will look at 3 John. And the people in 3 John have the opposite problem of 2 John. In 2 John, it seems they are welcoming these people in, and John's like, don't do that. In 3 John, there are like honest-to-goodness Christian teachers that the people are like, no, we're not letting you in. You're a stranger. We don't know who you are. And John's like, no, that's, that's not right. So we are to show hospitality. Okay? But we are to beware. Those who come in and teach things that are not true, those who deny the incarnation, these are people, these are teachers that we are to have nothing to do with. Let's pray together. Father, there's much we could say about hospitality. One could say it's a lost practice. We have hospitality services, restaurants, hotels, take care of people. The idea of opening our homes to strangers, to other believers. I suspect that we have failed in this way. But John warns of letting false teachers who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, 
who deny that he is the Son of God, he is the Christ, that such people have no place in the congregation. They are not to be shown hospitality. We are to be on our guard against such people. In our day-to-day living, may we walk in the truth, may we walk in love, and show the love of Christ to those around us. Hospitality, to show the grace that has been shown to us, show it to others. And as we have been loved, may we love others. May we obey your commands, not somehow imagine that we get to define love the way we want to. We thank you for your love, which you proved supremely by sending your Son, the Lord Jesus. We are unworthy. We are profoundly humbled. Your grace, which we do not deserve, your mercy, which we are in great need of, and the peace that you give us, amazing gifts, all wrapped up in what we call salvation. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. For those that are here, for those that are listening online, be with us as we walk through the world in this coming week. May we have a sense of your presence. May your grace and your spirit be with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.